Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a very, very, very special episode of the podcast. I'm joined today by a person that uh, I've probably mentioned on this podcast before, but like, who knows? Because there's like well over almost 300 episodes of this podcast on here. But um, this is a guy who is a very, very special man. Uh, that I've known for about, I want to say about four years now, and we always have very interesting discussions about a plethora of things from politics to art to movies to just life in general, and uh, it's an honor for me to finally have him on this podcast because, let me tell you guys, (laughs) it's been a very long time since we've had like a really like in like good voice conversation with each other and at the same time uh i just love this guy he's just really dope and um without further ado i'm introducing to you guys raul lazada uh raul why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself how you know me our journey (laughs) my god journey (laughs) oh so we got some uh some tales here so, um, howdy y'all. My name is Raul Lozada, as introduced by Ed. Um, a little bit my, about myself, you know, uh, I'm from Lawrence, Massachusetts, uh, to a large family from Puerto Rico, uh, artist, musician, uh, you know, insane asylum escapee. <laughs> um, I got to know Ed from Northern Axley Community College. Uh, we are in several art classes together. Then one day, Ed, being Ed, he is a very, how can I say this in a very good way? He's a very, uh, very serious man. But, but the one thing that stood out was that his, his love for, for movies and film. And to be honest, I had to, I had to like, I had to challenge Ed. I was like, you know something? He might love movies and he might know a lot about movies. But does he know a lot about, like, terrible movies? <laughs> and, and so a conversation started off. I don't remember this conversation because it's been so long. And probably I've done too many psychedelics. But <laughs> but I do remember that Ed is well-informed about film. We can go, we can talk about film. And we can see eye-to-eye on many films. Sometimes we don't. But that's okay. Now... That's the general gist of that love story and how we first met. <laughs> but in the end, Ed is a, a good guy. He's got my back. We come from the same town, different uh, backgrounds. We we come from different sides of the political spectrum, but, you know, he doesn't beat me up. I don't beat him up. We can have a good time. So that's what's important in life. Yeah. Ra- you're one of the few people that I've been able to, like... You know how like when you talk to people and they say things that you agree that you disagree with but they're like rationale for why they believe what they believe is so like not informed or not reasonable that it just gets annoying. I I've, I've been in that situation and like <laughs> me, remember me and you were coming from like first off Lawrence, second Neko, <laughs> third Massachusetts. Like this is like 
This is already a laund- this is starting to become a laundry list of things that do not go well for us. Yes, and you are one of the few people that I've been able to disagree with fully on things at points and mm-hmm. be like completely I don't know, it, our conversations just remain so calm and so like full of just like we're still like overjoyed though to still have someone to talk to about these things. You know what I mean? I, well, that's the thing. Like we don't see that every day like for me this is a story i wanted to get into before we started this whole podcast so the last time we talked to each other was correct me if i'm wrong was about a year and year and a half ago at um at the cafe oh yes 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 in person yes that was our last conversation yes and we were sitting we went in and it's kind of packed and for people who don't know who listen to this podcast Massachusetts is a weird state where it comes to politics, where, it's be- where they are very neoliberal on many topics. This is true. Ed, Ed can vouch for this. They're very neoliberal in many aspects, but they are very conservative in others. And I use yeah. a big air quote around conservative and neoliberal. Yeah. But yeah, we're I, in a I, weird state because we're a traditionally extremely blue state, but you talk to a lot of people and they hold a lot of conservative beliefs. Yeah, so I want I want to get farther into that after this little story. Yeah. So me and Eduardo, folks, were at Taller, and it's a local um, a local cafe. You know, it's very, very um, very Caribbean themed, run by people from the Caribbean, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, folks from South America. Um, very liberal. You know, they have a they have a Black Lives Matter flag flying outside. No, no. Again. From my point of view, Ed Ed is very Ed. Can you describe like your leanings politically the best you can? Um, <laughs> this is always like such a hard thing to describe to people because I'm always like, oh yeah, I have like I have very I, there are some beliefs I have that are like left, even far left at points, and there are beliefs that I have that are conservative and. What's weird, though, is that I can't say, oh, yeah, I'm, like, a center person, like, a centrist. Yeah. Because that is, like, a whole nother... That's, like, what you said with, like, neoliberal people in Massachusetts. Like, they're mm-hmm. centrists. But oh, yeah. I only balance out to the center, <laughs> which is, like... Which is, which is like, I'm such... I'm in the middle. Huh? You're in the middle. Yeah, it's, like, I'm in the middle only because I hold beliefs on both sides of the spectrum... But like, but aren't like neoliberal or neoconservative like beliefs, and yeah. um, so I try to tell people that like I am, I'm I'm definitely capitalist. I'm I'm some of my economic ideas lean libertarian, which is obviously right leaning yeah. economically. But I also, yeah. but socially, I know that I definitely have some left-leaning views i even economically have some left-leaning views for sure um and there are definitely some i things that i'm still battling with myself about today like abortion and um things like that so but i'm definitely pro-gun super (laughs) (laughs) pro-gun i i I think that's like those are like one of the many those are like one of the many issues where we see eye to eye yeah yeah for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll tell people a little bit and then get back into the story. Okay. So, 
for you folks that don't know, um, Ed just described how he is. I see Ed as more of a libertarian with some, you know, with some very, like, classic, you know, liberal views socially. Mm-hmm. Uh, for myself, um, as I told Ed before, to not much shock and awe. You weren't even shocked or awed by this. Um, I consider myself a classic anarchist in the sense of socially, uh, sometimes economically, but I can see, I can see through the clouds and see the like Ed's point of view economically, and we can disagree and we can agree on certain points. Um, socially, I'm in the same boat as you, Ed. Like uh, some things, certain issues when it comes to immigration, when it comes to like abortion, um, women's rights, like some of those things are, are the topics that I like to discuss or. Are already are already set in stone, because of like how I grew uh, like grown up. Yes. But um, I would say that I'm a classical anarchist. I I won't beat you up with a with like a lock and a freaking sock because I disagree with your views. Nah, uh, like Antifa. Oh God, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> oh God. See, that's that's what I'm afraid of. You know what's funny? So. I, I want I want to clear this. I want to clear like the room of the white elephant because this has not been discussed. So I have no problem with European Antifa, all the European Antifa, because you know they're doing their you know it was basically just like one group of people fighting like the other extreme extreme side of group of people. They never like mixed in with like with like uh, the conservative or liberals. They're like we're gonna fight the actual fascists. And neo-Nazis are left over, and you guys can do whatever you guys want, like, politically. Because we just don't agree with you, but we're not going to beat you up. Fast forward, like, 40 years, and now we're stuck with this mess from both sides. <laughs> yeah, the Antifa that we have, especially in the United States, is... It's it's something to behold, let me tell you. <laughs> hey, uh, let me clear this up, they're fucking Mormons. Nah, <laughs> they are, I would agree. They, I, to be honest, to an extent, I would say 95%. 95%. That's, I, okay, that's an extreme. Maybe 90. No. <laughs> okay. Be, no, because this is, you, can't, you can't say one thing. Because people are be like, oh, you're an anarchist, but you're, you're, you're talking shit about Antifa. You ain't no anarchist. I'm like, well, I hold my own views. I will talk crap about anybody of left or right wing, you know, socialist, communist, fascist, conservative, neoliberal, you know, nobody, nobody gets, you know, escapes like my grasp of like tearing them a new one. Yes. You know, lo- logically and verbally. But uh, I will agree that uh, Antifa is, Antifa has done more harm than good in a sense of like spreading well, not spreading, but trying to get their point of view across, in that sense. Yeah. And it, it, it's mostly folks our age, or also a little older, mm-hmm. the younger as well. And to be honest, I've talked with people who are part of Antifa, or like, who are neoliberal and like, join Antifa, and uh, to be honest, it, it's, it's, it's a shit show. Sometimes and, it feels like when you... I've seen interviews with these people and you talk to them and you see them. It feels it's like it's like I get it. Like we're all angry. Like I'm angry, you're angry, like the system is rigged, like we get it. But I think 
the perfect way for somebody to completely undermine their whole entire basis for what they believe, right? And to delegitimize their own movement is to act out violently towards people who aren't acting out violently against you. That that's what I could never understand because <clears throat> I understand like them like the whole reason for Antifa was to fight like actual neo Nazi groups. Yeah. You know, not like let's take let's take this for example. I start my own branch of Antifa. Mm-hmm. All right. This is all hypothetical, people. Don't, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't please don't dox me. Yeah. My computer won't handle it. Please. Yeah. Um. And I go and I say, okay. All right. Hey, we're not gonna fight people who are cons- who are gonna hold conservative rallies or like pro-gun rallies or like anti-immigrant rallies because to be honest, that's a fight we can't like we can't go to every single one. And like fight people for over this. Who who are holding real neo Nazi rallies, real KKK rallies, you know, real like far right white supremacist rallies? Those are the people like we should be like not in a sense targeting, but like vocally like convent condemning and like actually facing like yes fa- like facing actually. When it comes down to like how how Antifa groups and, like, so-called left-wing groups here, like, handle things, it's a fucking shit show. It's like, I want to fight you because I disagree with you. And this also goes for, like, folks on, like, the right side as well. Because there's two two sides to these coins. Exactly. And and there's also groups like, um, like the Proud Boys, they're right-wing, I wouldn't call them white supremacists. Um, Several members, yes, but not collectively. But they are extreme. Uh, they are right wing, and they 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 fuck up like the whole conservative values of of what they supposed to uphold. Yeah, you know what's crazy about the Proud Boys is like um, Gavin McInnes started them, right? And Gavin yes. McInnes was co-founder of Vice News, which is really left. And like when you think about that journey that he had to go on to go from being this creating this left leftist news organization right or i should say left-leaning organization because they weren't like part of the mainstream leftist media when they started and oh no they weren't that was the beautiful part about it was vice news was literally okay yes they are left-leaning but they brought like very important news videos and articles compared to like how they are now Exactly. Yeah, and now they with their show on HBO and everything, and they're all like, they're all they went full corporate. They went full yeah. corporatist on us. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah less than a year, I, I saw that whole transition. Yeah, and I remember like I had HBO. You remember Hunter, right? From our yeah. Yeah. So a Hunter let me use his HBO, and I um and I would watch Vice News on HBO, and I would always be like. Yo, and I, it was cool. It was at that point, like when they started, it was still like Vice still was like cool, right? Like Vice was still like, and then like as time went on, and like you know, you you read and you go and you get older, and you start like, you know, using your brain more because you're growing towards an adult. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, dang, Vice News sucks. <laughs> like Vice News is just as bad as CNN and MSNBC. <laughs> They, to be honest, 
it gets to that point. Like, unless it's a very serious, like, topic, everything else is, like, is, like, lost in, in the noise. And, and like, I'm talking the, about... And, like, the... I'm, I'm, uh-huh. I'm sorry, no, I'll let you finish. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking of, like, early Vice, too. Like, yeah. If, um, this whole... For example, the whole Russian Roulette series. I don't think um, I ever saw that. That is... I love the series because it followed the whole Ukrainian like Maidan revolution. Oh, from, like, from the front lines to like the to the advent of the civil war, the annexation of Crimea. Those were great because it followed the whole conflict seriously. Um, the reporter that they had wasn't leaning either way. He was just trying to get as much news out as possible of the conflict to avoid like a full blown like European civil war. Yeah. Um, it, it ran for, like, anybody can correct me if I'm wrong, around 250 episodes, and that's, like, via YouTube, so they can be, like, as long as 10 minutes or as short as, like, four, so. That's very, yeah, because I remember, because Vice used to be hip because they used to do a lot of stories like, um... The, 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 the radioactive animals of Chernobyl, right? And like, oh, yeah. or like they would be like inside North Korea and like mm-hmm. have that guy infiltrate North Korea and stuff like that. Yeah. And all that stuff was like really fascinating because they were like, they were like almost like the advent of like the intellectual dark web in a way mm-hmm. because it was all like, um, cause it was all stuff that like not normal people were looking into. It was all stuff that like weird history nerds were going into or weird, like, people who were, like, into, like, philosophy and stuff like that, right? And then there was yep. just all these, like, very interesting, weird, just all alternative news stories that were coming out by them. And they had and they had a very, and they had a presence on, like, uh, with videos on YouTube and stuff like that. And it was like, what is this? What is going on here? Yeah, yeah you know, that's why, that's what's so, that was, was so intriguing about Vice at that time. And I'm talking about, from my point of view, when I first found them, mm-hmm. was, like, was a random youtube video and it was just um i was trying to find like more information about the maidan revolution because when i I was still in high school and i'm seeing like these people like in ukraine are fucking in the town square like putting up like walls so the police don't come through because they're trying to have like a protest slash revolution i was not well informed because it was like the mainstream media so all i saw was just like the riot police and then people fighting each other back and forth for a couple months so then i got like vice and vice opened a whole new like door for me like into a world where like i can now see like what's happening in like different parts of the country that are not being whitewashed by the mainstream media Mm -hmm. so i dropped all mainstream media and just went to alternative media and then you know disagreed on on certain videos you know but they they kept themselves very like organized for the most part until they went corporate where mostly everybody left where most of their reporters were now like folks our age that are coming from like university campuses that are not well informed about the world yeah or have traveled outside the world well outside the u.s my bad so (laughs) yeah traveled outside the world (laughs) hey if any If, hey, if anybody travels outside the world for a Vice story and they make it, hey, kudos to them. Yes. I'll... I want the Life on Mars Vice series. Oh, 
Oh, yes. So here's our hydroponic plants. We had, couple, <laughs> we had some meteor showers come in last night. Uh, took out about 50 people, but uh, we're making do. <laughs> just, just be careful with uh, the hole in the wall over there. Yeah, the new frontier. Oh, yes. But, um, yeah, so that's... Oh, speaking of frontiers. But that's the most part about Vice. You... So, have you seen the Netflix documentary, Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom? I have seen, I have seen, so, I have seen, like, the trailer for it. But the thing is, right now, I don't have Netflix, and I'm relying on an old friend for her Netflix account. And mm. right now, hey, don't blame me. But, um, <laughs> right now, good, I, but right now, I have not been able to watch anything, because I've just been busy with like doing groceries painting just reading just trying not to like play video games or watch anything just like myself hmm. but um do tell continue and i was just gonna say that if you're interested in all of that stuff you should definitely check out that documentary it's a very like boots on the ground version of that story and what was going on when I first saw it, like when I first got into Netflix, um, like at the beginning of my sort of Netflix journey, I yeah. that was like one of the first Netflix documentaries I watched, and I was absolutely like, it bl- it blew me away. I don't know if now it would blow me away the same way, but I remember back then I was just like utterly shocked by just what I was watching. Yeah, I to be honest, that was me. I will feel the same. That was me when I was first watching. The, that revolution unfold but it was like during like before it was like 2000 late 2013 middle 2000 oh early 2014 mm-hmm. so a couple of years ago and i have just finally had like access to an actual good phone that could get youtube videos and <laughs> watch all that and like a good like like a, a decent tablet so i was just watching all this stuff and I was just shocked because this was like the heyday of YouTube where you can post like combat footage unedited, like seeing people get blown to bits. Yeah. Like, yeah, the glory days of YouTube. The glory days of YouTube where you can see people get blown to bits. And uh, now they're all like, and now when you upload a video, they're like, is this made for kids? <laughs> oh my god. Don't That's one of the things, I turned it off completely for my channel, the, like, made for kids thing, and it's, like, it's not even, like, my content on YouTube is even, like, bad or anything like that, like, there's literally, like, no coarseness to it, but I'm literally, like, I don't have time for your not for kids crap, like, yeah, I was, like, this is, it, what, oh my god, there's so many great YouTube channels that have just been, like, demonetized or outright just banned, bro, because of this whole, like, is it for kids? Is it good for, like, our corporate masters? And so, like, this is, like, an argument people have. It's like, well, you use a platform from a company. They don't owe you that platform. And I was like, that's true. But at the same time, like, you're really going to censor this, like, censor channels for, like, what they do. Yeah. And this is, like, a, this goes across the political spectrum. Yeah. It goes, like, and what it is, it's just, like, money at this point. Because YouTube doesn't make money. People... I hope people realize this. YouTube, since its inception, did not make a single coin. It relied on people. It relied on, like, outside sources. And when it got bought out by Google, well, that's that was the end of the road for, for YouTube and free, like, 
free speech on the internet. Yeah, and that's what's jacked up is like this is part of like I'm very I have a um Teddy Roosevelt sensibility when it comes to seeing corporations get big. <laughs> When yeah, it comes to corporate regulation, yes, yeah. and I hate the. F- I th- I'm, I am one of those people where I'm like, Facebook needs to like Facebook needs to be broken up. Jack Dorsey, Twitter needs to be broken up. Um, I like um, what's a face? Google needs to be broken up for sure. Like YouTube should go back to being its own independent thing again. Yeah, like they just have too much power. I mean. One of the things I did a I did a speech on this for my speech class was I was talking about um, how big tech companies are kind of censoring free speech, and I gave the example of Tulsi Gabbard, who I don't know if you know of her. Um, she was my favorite uh, Democratic nominee who was running, and I mean she dropped out like a couple weeks ago, but um, the whole the, Google essentially shadow banned her youtube account and if you were inside the u.s you couldn't find her on youtube you could only find cnn msnbc cbs videos about her but when you would look her up her channel wouldn't come up but outside of the united states you could look find her fine so people with vpns who had their vpn set to somewhere else could find her channel okay but if you were inside the United States and they did this purposefully after she became the number one trending candidate after every debate because she was destroying people. Yeah. Because she was absolutely wrecking people like Kamala Harris, wrecking people like Elizabeth Warren, wrecking people like Joe Biden, wrecking people like Pete Buttigieg, right? Like mm-hmm. she was just a savage and she like was not taking prisoners and people were like, who is this Tulsi Gabbard person? And they immediately silenced her. Yeah. That's, that's the one thing. Like I heard with Tulsi Gabbard, but again, I was not. I did not know about this. Like all I knew about her was from mainstream media snippets that I would see on YouTube. I wouldn't even watch the videos. I would just see like the snippets, and then also from your Instagram, you know, uh, page, which is by the way, people, it's a great, very great Instagram page. I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that shout out. <laughs> hey. I want uh you can pay me in uh V Bucks later. But, nah. but um this that's that's the thing. Like I did not hear anything about this, but I wouldn't even be surprised. Like where's uh, where's um I'm trying to find an example of this as well. Um I follow a anarchist um YouTube um page called mm-hmm. I'm not even I'm not I can't even say his name because he got he was shadow banned and for me personally, I thought he just got banned. He's like, that's it. They found out about the anarchist page just spreading like way to, you know, organize and collectively like protests and not become Antifa. And um, I I didn't see any videos, any anything from him for a couple like for a couple months. And then I tried looking him up on the search bar, nothing would come up. I was like, man, this is weird. So I had to go into like the channels I subscribed to. He was still like. I was still subscribed to him. I had the bell icon. Nothing, like, he was putting out videos, but nothing, like, showed up on my feed. And so I had to ask, like, someone else to, like, do me a favor and do, like, a little experiment and try looking him up. And the same thing happened until, like, they changed their VPN back to, Mexi- um, back to like, a Mexican server. Mm-hmm. And, like, they could, like, regularly, normally. So 
it's a weird form of censorship where it affects both left and right to a degree because these companies don't really care. Yeah, about... the thing is they just don't – what they only want is centrist voices that don't impact their like corporate um, – bottom line right nothing that yeah. nothing that toes the line against any mainstream narrative so like if you're a left person calling out left people i mean somebody like jimmy Dore, right who oh, is far left i love jimmy Dore so much he's like I, my favorite youtuber probably <laughs> I, to be honest i love jimmy Dore. sometimes he can get like too much on the brain you know I, so i got my alter- alternatives to jimmy Dore. yeah but i will say he holds up yeah, he's awesome. What's what's good about him is he'll like he's got like all your all every quote, every source, everything. He's like he puts it right up there. So yeah. you can see it. And I love that. And yeah, sometimes I mean I come to different conclusions than Jimmy Dore a lot. Maybe yeah. not a lot a lot, but we agree a lot about uh war, which is why I follow him because I love his talks about I love when he talks about like all the wars that are going on because I'm anti-interventionist. I'm, and I don't think we fought a legitimate war in this country since like the Civil War. So, <laughs> see, like that's, see, me and you can agree at that point. Where like I'm as well anti-interventionist. I rather have our troops come back and then, you know, have them like help rebuild a country the proper way, infrastructure-wise, and yeah, you know, try to help them out like PTSD-wise and. You know, maybe, you know, train like a, well, uh, actual real homegrown militia. Well, yeah, and it's like, why are we attacking people who have nothing, who've done nothing? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's one of my biggest issues. It's like, who attacked us? Al-Qaeda attacked us. And we basically overthrew the, the Taliban leadership in Afghanistan, like, two weeks after we got there. And, and it's like, and it's like, why are we still there 20 years later? And then, and then, did you ever see that post that that story that the Washington Post put out okay. the Afghanistan papers? Oh, I heard about the Afghanistan papers. I couldn't get too much into it because like sources were being very unreliable. So I had to like just drop that and keep it like on the back burner. It was but basically you- they basically went in there without a plan with with a plan that didn't work and they were completely mismanaging the war in that region which is why we've been there for like 19 years almost 20 oh god yeah and it's it's jacked up and that's one of the very few times that the washington post has ever done a good story um they also did i also saw a very interesting story i think it was them or the new york times about how the cia had bought a data encryption company and they were running it, and other countries were using it to send coded messages, and the FBI was just, like, cataloging all these other countries' coded messages that they were sending for, like, decades. Yes, I remember that story when it broke, and all the countries were like, ah, crap. Yeah, it was like, it was like, you've been doing this since when? They were like, since, like, pre-World War II. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, ah, crap. Yeah, that was nuts. I I remember I was in a, a chapel at my, um, at call at my college that I'm at now, and um, I was I was on my phone. I got an alert, and I was like CIA. It was like a CIA exposed buying data company for whatever, and I was like encryption company. And I was looking at it, and I was literally like, these people. I'm like these savages have been just tricking people into thinking they are some data encryption company, and all these 
higher ups of all these countries have been using them, have been going through the CIA to send their coded messages. I know that's the fucked up part because now there's like that I, for some reason. So I like to clarify to people my stance here. The United States as a as a country, as a piece of land, is not that much of a problem. It's a beautiful piece of land. It I, is. I've seen it coast to coast. And for the most part, I do like living here as to a certain degree. But half the people in the government just suck bollocks. And that's the best way I can say. But I can see the reason why so many countries just like do yes. not trust the US. <laughs> don't trust the usa the government the people and we we don't learn our lessons i mean it's like to quote john kuriaku i don't think there needs to be a cia (laughs) like we don't need it we're using it specifically to get over on people and manufacture like issues for us to have to basically assert more control over the entire world and it's jacked up it is it's very jacked and wait can we swear on this podcast? I, I strongly discourage it. <laughs> okay. Like, so, oh, all right. This is going to be a, a slight problem. You may need to edit it sometimes. It's okay. I'll, just, um, I'll put a label on it. Okay. <laughs> but um, it, it is very jacked. And for the most part, like, this, me and you collectively, like, know that the CIA is a bunch of junk. Yes. And, and it has meddled in foreign affairs to the point where mo- many dictatorships have relied on the CIA in the U.S. government to to be in power. Yes. And it's, the the list of countries is way too is way too much. And... I mean, I mean, just look at what they did to Libya, right? Oh Libya is, I think, the perfect example of what CIA interference can do at its worst. And that country had the highest living expectancy, highest GDP, highest everything, right, in Africa, right? Yeah. It was the richest country in Africa, everything. Muammar Gaddafi wanted to get off of the petrodollar and go on to the gold standard. And in doing so, his money was going to be worth a lot more than a lot of the traditional Western mainstream big countries like us and Britain and the euro and all that stuff. That was going to severely hurt from that. And they manufactured a civil war in that country and overthrew their dictator. And now, yes, Muammar Gaddafi was a dictator. Yes, he was pretty brutal, right? But Libya is far worse off now than it was under his rule. I mean, their number one industry right now, guess what their number one industry is in Libya? It is slavery. It's slavery. Yep. It's straight up slavery. It's And the whole entire country is run by regional warlords now. Oh yeah, well that was that that was the issue. Like this is like what I was surprised about. And to be honest, I will back it up with a with a slight um story on this whole issue. If people don't want to believe that they had a better, you know, um living um better living than us. Yeah. Because we are very, uh, folks here in the United States are very only have a view of the world one sided. Once you mention any country in Africa. You know what pops out into people's heads. They think about the starving children in Sudan and the in the arms of an angel and like all that stupid stuff. <laughs> yeah, and like endless endless conflict. But Libya, on the other hand, 
was stable. Yes, it was a dictatorship. We can't. We're not going to sugarcoat this. We're not going to. It was clearly a dictatorship. Yeah, we can't say there weren't downsides. <laughs> yeah, we can't say there, there weren't downsides. But my friend Yardley, he used to work at UPS. Um, hated working there, but he met a he met a former um a, a worker there, and he he saw that he was very like he was um very much darker skin, but very like he was well educated, and. My friend Yardley loves to, like, meet new people from foreign countries. He likes to, you know, broaden his horizons and learn. He asked him, like, his name and everything, like, where he's from. And then, you know, he told him his name, and then he told him he was from Libya. And then he said that he was recently a recent immigrant from Libya. Not that he's been living in the United States for the past 20 years, but around three years now. Hmm. And he told him that in Libya, you're getting... You get a, a like a monthly check for money, which was t- just for groceries or like just to help pay like like um energy bills. Um, gasoline was cheap, oil was cheap to like buy for cars. Everybody had a high standard of living. Everyone had like a good paying job. Um, and he said that once the civil war broke out, everything just fell in on itself and collapsed. Um, he was hopeful because he loved, you know, he's his commander. He had a nice apartment with his family, you know. And to be honest, he he said it like he had to whisper it because they were like outside the company. He was like, "We everybody in the country knew that Muammar's like our Muammar Gaddafi's army was going to win against the rebels until the U.S. and Britain and France announced that they were going to intervene with a no-fly zone and start doing airstrikes and." It was just shocking because this was totally against the narrative of yeah. what was just being fed at that time. And I saw, like, that whole thing go down as well. Yeah, the- I remember I remember on the news reports when they were like, Muammar Gaddafi is dead, and they were showing the video of the rebels pulling him out of that, like, hole or whatever. And they were, yep. like, holding his body, and he had, like, blood all over his face and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. And then they, then they think that they Gaddafi him, and then... For folks who don't know what being Qaddafi means, look it up. I can't go into detail on this channel. Um, <laughs> hey, they should watch the video themselves. Yeah, but, that um, yeah, that was yeah. What they did to that man, it's all on video, guys. What they did to him, you can probably find it on live leak. It's just yeah. it's just brutal what they did to Muammar Gaddafi once they yeah. found him and paraded him in the street. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but. Let's thank the CIA and uh, the other intelligence agencies. Uh, thank you, Hillary Clinton and Dick Cheney. You guys are the best. Yeah, thank you guys. You guys just caused a, a great refugee crisis, brought slavery to the 21st century. Amazing, isn't it? Honestly. Uh, it, it's just shocking, like, of all the places. And and to this day, like, going off your point, they're still fighting. And now it's a cluster, uh, cluster hen. Uh, <laughs> Hey, I'm trying to stop myself, but it's a cluster. Mm. It's a cluster now because now Turkey's involved, Russia's involved, the UAE's involved. Yeah. Like, this, it's just a playground now, like in Syria. It's a oh playground. my gosh, you remember earlier, was it earlier this year or was it last year, late last year, when Donald Trump decided to pull all the troops out of Syria, but he didn't, oh. like, make a smooth transition, and then Turkey immediately invaded and started a genocide against the... 
whatever that whatever that group is, the Kurds against the Kurds. That was well, not only the, not only the Kurds. I would like to add also like a lot of um, religious minorities, Yazidis, Christians, um, Jews, Literally, living, yeah, and Arabs as well, and um, natural Syrians as well are are getting like the shit in out of the stick. I've been following that, and then Turkey, you know, the Turkish people are for the most part are very brainwashed by propaganda because if people think mainstream media is terrible here when you look at mainstream media from turkey it's all state controlled bro it's yeah (laughs) that's one of the things we're like only slightly lucky is that Mm -hmm. we do have like a privately owned mainstream media even though they do like even though like they all have their own interests because all these companies are like owned by like six companies that all have stake in like oil and weapons and stuff like that. But if they had, if we had state controlled media in this country, it would be a, it would be a straight up disaster. <laughs> oh yeah. To be honest, like if you look at Australia's terrible, like Australia's, have you ever seen Australian news? No, no. Um, a little homework for tonight just watch like a couple videos on, okay on, on topics and australian news is state-owned well if you go onto any new channel from out from australia on youtube mm-hmm. all their sections are are turned off oh that's always a bad sign <laughs> oh yes and then what they put it is it, it hurts me because i love australians because of, like, of Mad Max, and then of their whole, like, you know, their whole, like, background. I mean, those they... guys, they literally, the Australian people, regardless of, you know, because a lot of jacked up stuff happened in Australia with the British coming in and slaying the aboriginals and then turning it into a prison colony for other people that were essentially under the rule of, of Great Britain and stuff like that. But, like, yeah. the adversity, like, those people are tough as nails because they are eight and like probably the worst continent you could ever be in ever right (laughs) with all the like worst possible animals it's like i saw something it was like i think australia is where satan keeps his pets like (laughs) like it's insanity what it's like over there but those people are tough and their history is like straight up savagery it i think that's what lends itself is that they uh, they're also nice people that's the thing yeah i don't i don't think i've ever seen anything about a, i've known people i've known an australian person and like i've met and like i've, I've it, we've seen tons of australia stuff because they're you know somewhere they're one of those you know british groups that are saturated in our media there's never yeah. any like really mean people from that country yeah not no, that i've I mean, ever met Crocodile Hunter is pretty nice, as far as I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Mad Max was a pretty good one. I mean, look, George Miller looks like the sweetest man you would ever meet. Hey, he did Happy Feet, remember, guys? Exactly. This is the man. This is the man that did Mad Max. And Babe. Babe. And and Babe. Bro. He has a soft side. Babe 1. Babe 1. Like a perfect movie. Yeah. Babe 1 is awesome. (laughs) And Happy Feet. And Happy Feet. Happy Feet is awesome, too. I remember seeing that in theaters, and that movie, like, blew my mind as a child. It did. It was freaking... It was crazy, because then... I did not know, like, like um, Miller directed Happy Feet. And then when I looked at, um... While I was working at Bull Moose, I had, um, a 
I was putting away movies, and I had Happy Feet, and then in the box was also Mad Max. I was like, why is Happy Feet and Mad Max together? And they're like, oh, we're on. It's just like the Miller box. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, you don't know? Miller directed Happy Feet. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> that that means that Happy Feet is canon to Mad Max. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. That's, That's it, people. I guess but, like, um, it feeds into the same definitely uh, ideas that he has about like the environment and animal protection and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. Um, it's he, a very conservationist pretty... movie. Oh, yeah. he's To be honest, he's also a, a doctor. I wouldn't blame him. He's also, a, by the way, folks, he is a doctor. He takes care of his stunt crew and actors. If a stunt is too dangerous or a scene too dangerous, he will change it. That's pretty good. That's a responsible man. That is a responsible Unlike man. Unlike Quentin Tarantino being like, Uma Thurman, just get in this car that we're pretty sure doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so you can so you can crash it into a tree and your knees get messed up forever. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Quentin, Quentin's a... Uh... I feel like that's a whole podcast in and of itself. Bro, literally. Uh, of him. But, um, but yeah, Australian news is very, Australian Turkish news is state-owned and it's very terrible. It's, um, I, I have, it's a good thing we have Instagram, although it's owned by Facebook, but. Bro, and now it says Instagram by Facebook. That's like the, that makes me upset to see every time I open that app. <laughs> yeah, it makes me. And to be honest, I've deleted that app several times. Nah. I I love being like connected with people, you know, because it's not Facebook. But I love using it to like meet people and see like, hey, what's up on this person's page? Like, oh, they do art. I like to, and they do music. Let me hit them up or message them or follow them, and like you know, give support whenever possible. Exactly. But when when I saw like by Facebook, I was like. Shh. Like, going back to the whole Monopoly thing, I was like, oh, God. Break it up. Break it up. <laughs> so, Wait. huh? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just saying, uh, break up um, the Monopoly. Yeah, break them all up. Break them all up. That was the only thing that Elizabeth Warren, like, wanted that I was, like, for. Of all the terrible things in Elizabeth Warren's campaign, the only thing that she had in there that I was, like, actually about was definitely the breaking up of Monopolies. Oh God, sheesh! That's that's that, that was a shit show, to be honest. Like work, so coming. So when I was used to work at Boom Moves, and for the folks who don't know, Boom Moves is a local um, record store chain on the East Coast, coming from Maine all the way down to New Hampshire. And they're awesome. And they are awesome, but they are going corporate. I'm the insider. I'm sorry. They do have a great selection of movies. So if you're looking for a rare movie, they may or may not have it. But always, always try. There's, there's always been like wilder things that have found. And good quality used movies. Yes, that is true. We At very pay. cheap and affordable prices. That as well. And I will vouch that we do check the movies for scratches and damage, both yeah. water damage, sun damage, and scratches. And we will buff out scratches, folks. Yes, I've um, bought I've bought many used movies from Bull Moose when I first found out about them, and I'm like, yo, this is amazing. Yes, um, I used to so, folks, I used to work at Bull Moose at this record store. Um, discounts weren't that bad. Um, I used to take just free video games and movies that were just going to get thrown out or destroyed. 
So a lot of rarities, music-wise, movie-wise, book-wise as well. There are some volumes of books that were that were amazing. Um, but going back to to Boom Moose, it was just weird working there because everyone's roughly between the age of 18 to 28. So, and then mixed in ages in the middle. So everybody's pretty much like either liberal or this centrist point of view, but they think they're they're socialists or democratic socialists. <laughs> um, so working there, great. I, um, night crew was great. Um, but they, but my assistant manager, who I will not name, but he's a great guy. His name rhymes with babe. <laughs> but um, he was very. He's a big Bernie bro. And um, nice assistant manager. He helped us out, but he was very big on Bernie Sanders. And people would always ask me, like, what my political leanings were. And I would always avoid the conversation. It was so dreadful to try to have a conversation about politics while working there. Um, people were stunned that I was very pro-gun for being a punk. So, also, that's the one thing... Um, me and Ed didn't get into was that um I I am very well into metal and punk. Oh yes, well, that was supposed to this it's going to come up, guys, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Um that will come down later down the road. But people were surprised that me being a punk and they are probably having some judgment that punks are all willy nilly like liberal and left leaning. That I myself enjoy hunting, enjoy you know enjoy um shooting guns that I'm very pro gun that will not that I will not back down on my pro gun stance. They didn't like that it was very hmm, that will call out bullshit from everybody's like point of view and perspective and give them logic and facts instead yeah. of feeling. Um overall it wasn't bad, but there were certain points where it was I, I was kind of targeted for censorship by my manager um so because going into detail about this everybody who works at Boom Moves is allowed to play music when it's their turn you know it keeps things fresh you know give the ears of like a nice li- um nice vibe um when it came to me everybody knew that I love metal and I love punk but I would take into consideration it's it shouldn't be really harsh, you know, and it shouldn't really like be like full of swears. And I was, and I respected those rules. Yeah. And I was like, there, there's music like that within those genres where it won't swear and it's not like noise. Yeah. So, I, um, uh, Metallica. I actually play Metallica. Metallica's um, awesome. <laughs> that's when we get into the whole music side of this. Podcast. We'll go into Metallica and music and punk, but uh, I was playing Metallica's. Um, what was it? It was Ride the Lightning. Okay. It was Ride the Lightning, and my manager. It, everybody knows the title track to Ride the Lightning, and so I, I'm playing it. I'm working. You know, I'm checking people out. The volume is not too high, and. I was just playing it safe. You know something? I've been playing the Beatles. I've been playing Jimi Hendrix. I've been playing, you know, Pink Floyd for a little bit. I want something a little bit, like, harsher. So, 
I played Metallica. It went all fine. And nobody was like, no one batted an eye that day. Now, I started playing Sepultura as a root to bloody roots the next day. And it's not as harsh compared to like the rest of the band's discography. Mm-hmm. But when I started getting into the title track of uh, Roots, Bloody Roots, my manager just like lost it. Like she was like, this is very harsh. Um, I think I heard a swear. Um, you got to take it off or we got to put something else on. And I was like, the same, uh, I, to be honest, I literally did argue. And I was like, I thought this was like, I could, to be honest, I thought this was a free country where like, no matter like the music you play, you can play it. And we also work at a record store. Like, it doesn't matter the music we play. We have to like, this is people's tastes and people have to be open to all the music. They may not like it. Will we lower the volume? Yes. But people have to accept that this is what people listen to. It's not always going to be Johnny Cash and Pink Floyd along with some shoegaze or indie pop, you know. But it, after that, um, censorship started, it started going very hefty. Because I, um, my friend Kevin also worked with me. He also loved heavy stuff. But very was well, very experimental compared to jazz and everything else. Um, they told him he couldn't play hip hop. Um, our other coworker um, Isaac was a big hip hop fan. Um, he he was not allowed to play hip hop as well. He would have to wait like late at night to play it. I would have to wait late at night to play my music. And it was just a very eh, environment where everything's very socially um, politically correct or people act like snowflakes oh oh yeah I actually got in trouble because I described like my upbringing with a co-worker and how I saw somebody like at the middle school when I was living in Puerto Rico where these two like um, 8th graders were fighting each other and one of them picked up a rock and hit the other dude in the head and like he was just bleeding all over the place stumbling by and I was describing this in full detail to my coworkers because me and her were talking about like, um, as long as children are exposed to violence but have a proper parent to tell them, you know, sit down and talk about to them about life, the world, and violence, they should be pretty, you know, well, well off, you know. But that was a big no-no. <laughs> that was a that was a big no-no, and my manager was like, "We don't talk about that." in this store. I was like, oh, God. So, since we're here and we're in this music part, so, Raul, you were part of a band uh, and you had moved to California for a period of time to be with them and perform with them and stuff like that. Yes. And as long as I've known you, you've been definitely a a punk at heart. Um How about you tell us a little bit about what your experience was like being in California, being a part of a punk band, and, you know, just talk to us about that. Because I find that very fascinating when I found out that you moved all the way to California and then you were, like, in a band and everything like that because I was like, oh, shoot, my man, my man making moves right now. My man. So... I will start from the very, very beginning because this is like my se- that was my second trip to California. Okay. So I'll start all the way from the first trip. So a little background. Still at Neko, 
it was um I was just feeling very disillusioned with the whole like campus and like the whole like system in a sense very generic to say but um in a sense that I wasn't really having creative liberties with like my art both um both drawing wise and music wise it was a very close-minded campus besides a few people like yourself ed um you obviously remember Janelli. yes and just one or two other people paul <laughs> you know how that campus was let's <laughs> just say um so i was just very disillusioned the comic book class i was taking was just not what i thought it would be mm. and so lots of things happened in my life you know uh, I was I was kicked out of the house, so I was living with roommates basically. I was still trying to like, you know, go to college. Um, still trying to go to college. Um, was barely had a was barely holding a job, you know, working two days a week, and so I was like, and then just family troubles, and you know, that all came and it culminated into just like, you know, something. Fuck this! I'm just gonna drop out of college, just pursue like art music and just work that's i said it and then then move forward was still like working was just now like barely having like three days a week now was still living with um with friends on the couch and then at this point um i've never done like i've only done um i've never done hard drugs Ed has seen me high as a kite on weed, so that's another story. Eduardo has seen Raul Losada high as a kite in class. <laughs> so yeah, those are that's... always very eventful classes. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I walked in late, oh god. Yeah, I was always like, oh shoot. <laughs> you Raul, knew already. Raul's here. <laughs> <laughs> you knew because you. I used to sit next to you in class yeah and you knew i was when i was high and when i wasn't high when i was high i would just laugh my ass off while talking with you carlos i know you thought it was mad fun you thought everything was mad funny because it was because life is a fucking joke and i say that from the purest like best way possible but continuing so i have done psychedelics so i have done acid um i have done um at that point i wasn't doing it Every fucking day. Oh, God. Every day. So, I wasn't doing it every day. Um, at this point, I was, like, dry. And so, my friend comes up. And he's a good friend. I met him. But he's also a big um, dealer in, in psychedelics. And Mary Jane. Um, and he's asking me questions. He's like, hey, have you ever done, like, a psychedelic? Um, how, um, just asking me, like, my music taste, because he saw me with my leather jacket and my, my pants and my combat boots. And he's a very, like, down-to-earth guy, loves hip-hop. And I told him, yeah, you know, I done, like, has once, and then, you know, did it another time with friends. And then he's like, have you ever done Magic Mushrooms? And I was like, no, I have not. I have never done Magic Mushrooms. And he's like, oh, well, I have them. If you want any, it's literally three and a half grams. It will be just 30 bucks, dude. I'm sitting there, and I was like, hmm. Hmm, you know something? I can manage acid. And after doing a lot of research about magic mushrooms, I was like, you know something? I'll do it. 
I'm with friends. They'll look after me. If anything goes wrong, just call the fucking ambulance. Um, and just let's go from there. So this the story to leading up to the band in California is coming up. So <laughs> I think so what I didn't know was that if you take three and a half dry grams of mushrooms, you are on a trip to a different dimension. <laughs> I can really say that. So I took them, and then all my friends were there, like friends from like childhood, like middle school, basically, elementary, middle school, all there, and we're just having a good time. They're playing Battlefield 1 because I told them, you know, Battlefield 1's better than, than a new Call of Duty, and they were like blown away. And we're all together in the living room. And I'm tripping so hard on three and a half grams of mushrooms. Like, things are starting to go in and out wavy. They all have an aura to them. Like, things were starting to get bubbly. Like, I fell asleep, but I could still hear everything happening. Like, my mind didn't shut off. Um, It got to a point where, like, I had a pen pal from California named Chris. And he followed me on Instagram. And I followed him because he was making industrial music. And he was a punk, and I very love, like, I love punk music, and I got into metal as well, and so, feeling very, like, lonely in a place where it's very, like, close-minded folks, uh, that was, like, my escape. He was, um, he was a pen pal, I was talking to him about music, trade music, and then my friend Joey, who came along later in life, was the only metalhead in town, and I was the only punk, so me and him were, like, glued. Um, but that night after I tripped on three and a half grams of mushrooms, I was like, you know something? I'm going to take a trip to California. I'm going to meet Chris and I'm just going to go and explore the world. What's the worst that can happen? Fast forward. And I tell, I was telling him, I was t- I've been telling Chris for nearly three years. I was going to come visit, visit him. So when I finally arrived at the airport in San Diego and I called him on the phone because I was waiting for him and I, and he thought I was saying it as a joke, just trolling him. And then I told him, no, I'm literally in Can- like San Diego. I'm at the airport, and I took pictures of the palm trees. And he's like, oh, crap. Uh, we're going to try to get you a ride. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, literally, I picked a Wednesday. No one had their cars. And then it was a whole fiasco. Like I had to like hop onto a bus. I didn't pay for. I didn't pay the fare, which was the best part. I learned how to take the trolley system with San Diego. Like had to learn, and then around ten thirty at night, we um I, I meet my friend Chris, and um my our future bassist Alan, um young 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 kid like fifteen and a half years old. Chris is like barely eighteen. I'm here like sitting at like 20 and so we're all saying what's up we're hugging each other and like talking about music and like this dude's friend is like tripping on acid and he's like this dude's from Massachusetts like oh god like asking me questions then we go to a park and then I meet the rest of the California crew and they you know it's all these other like punks and metalheads at a park near like midnight you know with skateboards it's straight out of, like, a movie scene, how it all, like, was going down. And so, they all, like, size me up and just ask me questions. And then, you know, they pull out a, a, a pipe 
and they start smoking weed. And I'm, by the way, these are 15, 14, 16 year old kids with like your with like one or two 20 year olds just hanging out at a park smoking weed in California at midnight. They meet this dude from Massachusetts, and then they just look at me like if I'm gonna tell them, "Hey, don't smoke weed. That's lame." Yeah. And then the the first thing I go and I was like, "Hey, can I take a hit from that?" And that's how like the beautiful part of that friendship came. Hmm. But that's the first part to this story, my first journey. From there, um, it was just going around California, like San Diego mostly, just meeting, pla- seeing places, seeing how it is, enjoying the weather. Um, nice warm weather. Um, meeting people, eating like, me- um, traditional Mexican food. Um, and then one night. Um, after a couple like house shows because my friend Chris has a backyard and he throws like backyard shows for the folks who don't know in California um, they can't have basements due to like due to the earthquakes so they just have like large backyards Hmm. so most shows happen in a backyard if it's all ages if it's 18 plus or 21 plus people will just go to a bar but it's lame because most folks who are into rock and roll punk or metal are usually a younger crowd not to say that there's not older cats but a backyard show is the way to go mm-hmm. four, you can have four bands on the bill five bands and just pay like a dollar per band so five dollars that's not a lot that's like your, your allowance or like a little part of your check so one night uh, my friend chris was trying to make put together like a documentary of the scene and i just look at him and we just talk, start talking about, like, Lemmy from Motorhead. And I tell him, let's just make a band. Let's just start making a band and just play music of, like, the stuff we love. You know, and so the next day, we go to our friend Alan's house. And he lives at near the border. He lives in San Ysidro, mm. which, is ba- which is basically just a stone, a stone throw from the border. And he's very, um, he's from Tijuana. His family's from Tijuana, so he has a slight accent. But this kid, this is a prodigy, and seeing it as it is, could play the bass that known grown man I've met play the bass. Dang. Yes. Like, whenever people hear, like, the demos or, like, the music, like, we put out, they always tell me, man, who's your guitarist? Who, who's playing, like, guitar on these tracks? And I look at people, and I was like, wow, you think that's a guitar? That's a bass. You want to know even more surprising? That's a 16-year-old on bass. (laughs) Dang. Yeah, that's putting it into perspective. And so we go the next day. We get to, like, the garage. And Alan's known as a person who loves taking psychedelics and smoking pot as a young person. But he's very down-to-earth, very knowledgeable. He loves to, like, read, research. Um, I asked him, as I came like, hey, in, you want to be the bassist to our band? And he was like, sure, why not? Like, my band's on hiatus, so it's best to do something or nothing. And so, we got, um, our first gig was to play at a, a, a front yard show at Imperial Beach. So, what the name implies is a town by the beach. Um, and so, we didn't practice until that uh, until a day before 
the show, and all the bands were practicing there. So, and I started meeting other people, and so my band was like, oh crap, it's midnight, um, we only have three songs, screw it. So, we did like a small like jam sesh, but everybody's like high or drunk off a cup off of hard liquor. So, we wake up, and it's six hours before the show, and I wake everybody up, and we're all sleeping in this dude's garage on, like, some mattresses or on the floor, and I just wake wake up my friend Chris, and I wake up Alan, and I was like, hey, guys, we should at least rehearse before the show. So, we all get up, we, you know, we drink some coffee, me and Alan smoke some weed, and we're just like, all right, guys. Let's try practicing the three songs we were trying to practice yesterday. And the original demo for Liberación Violenta, which is the name of the band, um, was recorded in a garage off of some very, very crappy amps and a broken drum set. But it was still, like, very raw to the core. And we played that show, and people were, like, blown away by what they saw collectively from the, from the band. That's so that's just, yeah, that was just so one part of that. So that's how you guys kind of like started. Like that was your first like now we're a band officially. Yeah, that was our, okay, we played this front yard show. Now we're a band. Now we're like something serious. And then my, um, there was a situation where I couldn't find work in California during mm. my first and I had to cut it short. And I was like, you know, being here for a month really opened my eyes. You know, I met a lot of great people. <laughs> uh, I met a lot of great people. Like, I I went to California to meet one person, and I came back knowing 30 people. Mm. Like, from all across, like, San Diego, from, like, the music scene. And we're trying to just experiment with music and not get caught up in this whole side of politics. Because everybody is a weird, is a weird form of anarchist, or just doesn't like being told what to do. Yeah. Um, but I came back, couldn't find a job in Massachusetts for a little bit. Uh, started working odd jobs. Then I was working at Boomu, saved up money. Um, was trying to just handing out this three-track demo to people who who would take it. Boom Moose was a perfect place. I started meeting a lot more punks and metalheads there who would come to Boom Moose because we were the only store that had like any metal or punk mer- um, CDs hmm. and, and DVDs, uh, no matter how small the section was. And since I was the only like punk, like metal punk there, people would, like come up and like talk with me and like I ask them about shows or how the punk scene was back in the 60s, uh, the 70s, and the 80s. And you know, met a lot of great people. I probably gave out like 50 copies of that demo just at Boomers. Wow. Yeah, and saved up money and came back to California. And I told Chris, I was like, hey, I'm coming back. And so he was like, they're all waiting like two years. It was like two years since my first visit. And then I came back and just exploring California, started meeting new people. Played um didn't play as many shows as I as I wish um, we had played, mm. but we played, like, more important shows, and at that point, I was just, like, meeting, like, new band, like, new bands from the area. Like, 
who were very like about music, who really had a talent for music. Again, these were all like 16, 15, 17 year old kids, which was the surprising part was that they were. What, if you don't mind me asking, what was your position in the band, real quick? Um, for you, um, to tell you, Ed, and all everybody listening, um, I was the vocalist for the band. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. See, that's I what I figured. Vo- that's I was, I was like, we should probably clear that up for people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so my friend Chris was the drummer. Um, my friend Alan was on bass, and I was on vocals. Okay. Um, I was the vocalist. Um. Around the second time, I was after like two years of experimenting with like music, just listening to broad genres, listening to music from around the world. Um, maybe, maybe one or two uh, uh, mushroom trips later, I was like, you know something, I want to change the sound of the band. I want to change the dynamic of the band of just being uh, this very raw, in-your-face punk band to this very experimental punk band, yeah. where. It's still going to be raw in your face and, you know, calling things out. But I wanted to have influences of thrash metal, heavy metal, um, funk, grunge. Um, melding the genres together. Melding the genres where, like, it will be a super group consisting of, like, the fo- the people I know from the scene. So, I can... <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. I ho- did you hear that yell? I did. That was hilarious. Oh, my God. Here's goes my baby cousin. <laughs> my baby cousin. All right, folks, that's my baby cousin in Roblox. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't get any better than this. But, um, yeah, so instead of making Liberación Violenta just a three-piece, it was a a super group consisting of members from different bands. Um, We didn't have a guitarist, but the other metal bands that we knew had guitarists. And we're like, hey, if you guys ever want to make music just come play with us we'll play a show you know keep rotations open for who's available um so three main uh, main members and then everybody else is just friends who are who are musicians and they play all types of music you know some play trumpets some play saxophones some play in like marching bands you know but they all like collectively are like love punk music or love thrash metal in essence nice nice so how many so you had a three track demo you mentioned from the first time you guys uh, from your first trip by the end of your second trip how many songs would you say that you guys have done we by that time due to everybody's schedule, because these weren't kids anymore, you know, they're finally becoming young adults. Mm-hmm. So, college and jobs were now on their forefront, you know. They're all at beginning that transition from from teenager to young adult. So, um, my bassist, Alan, was now playing in a mariachi band. And he plays a wicked trumpet. So, he was his scheduling was very sporadic and sometimes would not match up with band practice okay. so my friend Chris who loves he was um, a big punk but he was transit he was starting to get more into heavy metal thrash metal speed metal started a new band called creature and he was a drummer for that band so I couldn't tell him to to practice one day if 
that same day is the same day they're going to practice. So scheduling time was very sporadic. Um, by the way, to just let people know, I was living with my drummer Chris on his couch. Um, and I was basically the roadie helping like pack up the band equipment, get everything ready, set up the PA system, um, make sure everybody was equipment was up and running. And I was, I just knew the bare bones of like setting up a PA system and just experimenting. I figured things out on my own. And, um, but, um, but yeah, um, by the end of this, of that second trip, we had re-recorded um, the three tracks from our main demo, which was um, Pan Tierra Libertad, um, Cerdos Fascistas, and Fuego Nuclear. Hmm. Um, for folks who aren't, well, who are now catching on, um, my band is an all-Spanish punk band. You know, we mostly sing, well, I mostly sing in Spanish, uh, with some exceptions to certain songs, but we re-recorded those three songs. Then we had a new song that I was working on called um, Fake It to Make It, which was a hardcore song in English. Um, that song has an interesting story to how it came about. But um, Do you tell? Well, how it came about was that while going to shows, um, there was a place called um, the Bow Wow House. It was an abandoned um, um, like factory in a sense, an industrial side of San Diego. Mm-hmm. And it was this this chick that had that had it rented out for venues. So people would come and play. But most of the bands um, that would come and play there would be not metal or punk bands. They would be more cover bands for like pop punk or rock and roll. Ah. Um, um, in, um, indie music, indie rock, um, shoegaze, um, your occasional modern hardcore band. Um, it was just, I, and just being frankly honest, most of the bands just didn't have heart or just playing music to just get rich and famous or mm. for clout. Okay. Um, they weren't doing um, it. Were... They weren't doing it because it was something in their soul that they needed and wanted to do. Yeah, what they wanted was just like, I want to become the next like. Kurt Cobain or like Sid Vicious or it's like I know? want music for a career not because there's not because music is something that's so inside of me that it, that this is the only thing I know how to do yeah which was um which was very like saddening because a lot of those like folks some of them were talented when they some guitarists drummers and bassists mm-hmm. but they were just they would just play the same old music the same old songs set to set to set because they're chasing and the money. They, yeah, they're chasing the money, they're chasing the fame, the clout. And so we played a show, our first show, that front yard show, we played with a band called Leech. And we got, I got to meet the kid. Um, he was a nice guy. I don't know, like, you know, a nice kid. I don't know what, you know, what changed in two years. But I saw Leech and then following them on Instagram, I saw that they were changing their sound from a very grunge-oriented rock and roll to something that was, like, they're trying to become a hardcore punk band by copying all the other hardcore punk bands that came before them instead of reinventing themselves. Mm. Um, but let's say um, an example of this would be my friend Jordan. 
he was on the very extreme side of punk. He was, um, for people who don't know, he was a crust punk. And what that entails is that they just live, you know, they don't really care about how they look. You know, their their pants are as patched and as dirty as they are. Their, their vests and leather jackets are as studded and as dirty as they are. And their, their hair is charged, which means that, um, it's not, um, it's, it's not Liberty Spikes, but um, if any of you want to look up what charge, charged hair is on a punk, you'll see what I mean. Um, it looks more like a porcupine um, with all the grease and everything in there. So he was very, in a sense, brutal when it comes to music for a 15-year-old kid. And I don't blame him, in a sense, because Jordan's coming from a very um, rough neighborhood full of gangs. Um, his dad's a... Uh, former gang member but that past still haunts them from time to time a lot of deaths in the family hmm. so it was only like appropriate that he instead of following that path he went down the path of like music um and well the thing is he went that was their first show playing as well so he wore a, a ski mask and with combat boots and their destroyed pants and vests and so later on, the same um, the same person from the lead singer from Leech started wearing a, a ski mask, trying to copy uh, this, uh, how how our friend Jordan's band was playing. Mm. So and so it kept on evolving, where this band kept on just copying other bands or getting influences and just trying to make it. And so while being there at the Bow Wow House, I saw a lot of bands. I saw a lot of like these modern hardcore bands and they just none of them really stood out to me except for one called rival squad and they were a great band i'll give them that um but bands like um their band names are like kerosene bays leech sodas you know they're they're very uncreative names um it's not to talk down too much about them but they're very uncreative and very unoriginal and that was the whole conflict was that they were trying to cut out all this fake music and um all this music that is soulless there's no experimentation there's no there's no unity everybody's out to like chase money and fame that's and always sad you know, it, it was saddening to see because there's also people there who are trying to be this sounds very hypocritical, but there is a certain um, way it comes down to punk music and metal music. If you go in for the style and for the fashion and not for the music and for the way of life, which is the way you dictate how you live your life, not by your looks and fashion, <clears throat> you're going to come in for a rough time because you can't relate. Um, there's, there's kids there who are just trying to you know copy you know, hardcore bands from the 80s, you know, cop the way of dress, you know, um, you know, trying to be like uh, a time capsule of the 80s instead of just moving forward and just being their their own, their selves. And so my band and a lot of the thrash metal bands and punk bands that I was with and knew had problems with them because they were like, we don't want to play a set with them because they suck. You know, and so yeah, it got to a point where we played a set, and then they're telling us that um, they're telling us that we sucked, and we weren't being we weren't being creative. We weren't letting indie rock 
you know, ex- uh, express itself. Like, punk is about, like, expressing yourself. There is no set rules to punk. And, you know, I do agree with them, but they are very hypocritical in the sense that they say this, but don't put it into action. Okay. Um, so, They Get to Make It came about from, like, seeing all these bands that couldn't do anything. They wanted to be harsh. They wanted to be edgy. They want to be, like, in your face. And most of their songs were just very simple. I mean, like, punk is simple in and of itself, but it can be complex songwriting-wise. Yeah. Um, in a degree. And so is metal music. And so they're trying to be political because they're um, political because it makes them cool. You know, they're, they're anarchists, but they're not really anarchists. They're more um, neoliberal that will vote for Bernie Sanders because they want free college and he, he'll ban guns and is pro-immigration and all this stuff instead of just thinking for themselves and studying and learning. Yeah. So, just um, bandwagoning, essentially. Yeah, bandwagon. Essentially, yeah. So they're just bandwagoning. And it just got to a point where like, I got frustrated and I didn't want to go to prison for beating up a 16-year-old. <laughs> and then, you know, being roommates with Big Bubba is not going to help me. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, you know something? I'm just going to make a song about this. And I made we made that song one night called Fake It to Make It. Um, our only English um, um, English song. Because I wanted to bring a little bit of what Massachusetts hardcore to West Coast and just mix it together. Hmm. And just make it as brutal and just call, call people out. And in the song, I do call people out. Like... Um, you think if you listen to the song, there's certain lyrics where I say like, "You think you're really tough, but not, but you're, but not. You think you're really tough, but you're really not. You call yourself an anarchist. You're just in, you're just another piece of like literal, s h i t, getting around these this censorship. But um, and then telling, and then just calling them out for like spreading propaganda, like, because that's all they do. They, they'll throw benefit shows or like liberal candidates and then nothing for the community or they'll play at a place called, um, uh, it's a, um, it's a venue called the Che Cafe and they are staunchly communists. And, uh, I want people to know about this. The band and the band members are staunchly anti-fascist, anti-communist. Um, we won't, we will never play a venue if it's communist or socialist or, it ha- or it has anything to do with like, um, you know, white supremacy or neo-Nazism. That's what we, we staunchly oppose those, those views. Yes. And, the extremes on both the right and the left. Exactly. Cause they don't, um, seeing those venues, they didn't really help anything out. And it's just cemented a song a little bit more. Yeah. Um, moving on, like for the other songs we wrote, um, we started experimenting with going with like an even heavier sound, more distorted, um, something from Swedish and Finnish and Japanese like punk from the eighties, um, which at that time was very like underground and very harsh to their realities of like post World War Two society, um, and just we made um one track called um Esclavos de los Políticos, which is um slaves to the uh, slave to the politicians, and. Is a much more harsher, guttural, um, in-your-face, like, song. 
changed uh, changed my vocals. Um, then we had Radio Perdido, which was an experimental song, and where it became a very noise industrial, in a sense, very punk and very raw. Um, our mic was breaking, so we just recorded a song off a broken mic. So all my all my vocals cut in and out, like a old radio frequency coming in and out, and that was the mm. general general gist of the song, and that's um, why I liked it so much. Um, we had um we had those songs, and then we had um a couple of um we love to joke around as well. We're not always serious. We had um two surf songs, <laughs> which was <laughs> see. Um, we had two, um, technically three, but one of them was a lot more just melodic, like Tupa Tupa Hardcore. Okay. Um, um, for the first one, it's called Triple S, which stands for Sloppy Surf Seconds. Um, and that's just a minute and eight seconds of a, of an improv surf song between my bassist and my friend Chris. Because surf music is very big in California, but yeah. <laughs> it, has, it hasn't been reinvented. That's so true. we took a, so we took a funny approach to it, and I told them, guys, make up a surf song, but like not make up a surf song. <laughs> so what happened was that they just took all the combinations of a, of a surf song and then mixed in like punk and metal, and just it's basically three songs in one song. Nice. In a span of a minute and eight seconds, because the bass is not following the bass follows a, a standard like surf guitar, uh, surf bass but it changes in and out of, like, punk and metal. And then my friend Chris plays drums, but he plays more metallic surf, and then he goes straight into, like, thrash, like, thrash on beats and, like, double pedal and double bass. And then it just cuts off with, like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like, it's such a build, it's a build-up where, like, the last chord is just, like, womp. <sighs> like, um, the second surf song was um, we tried doing a cover of Surfing Bird. Mm. Um, just to be honest, that is a track that only me and friends will listen to. <laughs> didn't come so out. Just, a, didn't come out the way you wanted it to. Let's just say that out of, of a five minute like jam session of trying to figure out to play Surfing Bird, we made probably the first three minutes is all like so improv and like my vocals for surfing bird it's just like not fitting the general direction of it mm. till like towards like for the, the three and a half minute mark that's where like it starts changing where like me singing surfing bird starts to become more and more like uniform and then i just change it into like an improv surf song just calling out surf music and like anybody who like doesn't reinvent it and um it vo vocally and then and instrumentally is it's just not on par for like what we were feeling at that time so we just kept it around and then uh that's the so we recorded six tracks six new tracks re-recorded three tracks and then i had a side project that was dealing more with um black metal hmm. from puerto rico because I really love to bring back, um, I like to go back to my roots once in a while. And so I just wanted to do like a black metal band. I was just focused on Puerto Rican, like, um, like heritage, like mainly like Taino Indian. And so 
also supernatural as well. So I we I recorded a two track demo with uh with two new bandmates, um, Wyatt and Thomas, both guitarists, and then my me myself on vocals and then my friend Chris on drums again. Nice. So I so we're coming up to the end of our time here, so I'll make sure I mm-hmm. get some get some of these questions in real quick. Yeah. Do you think that it's a possibility that in the future we will see the um the regrouping of violent liberation? Um Yeah, yeah. Um I we're in the works right now. Like right now this whole quarantine and not having work has been detrimental. I feel you. <laughs> to, to, I know to not having money and going back and recording with a band and just doing things. Um, I'm trying to find a way where I can get my bandmates over here along with a couple other friends so they can just visit for two weeks um, and just like Airbnb somewhere and just like we just well, you know just focus on music. Yeah. And, you know and just play like a show somewhere or like or I thought yet too. True, true. Yeah. So it's, it there's a high there's a high chance um LV is 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 we'll we'll think we'll still be together. Nice. And on your own, I know you're an artist. On your own, mm-hmm. and I know that you really wanted to be a comic book artist when I knew you. Yeah. Is that something that you're still pursuing that you're into working at? Because I know that um, I see you post art and stuff all the time mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um right at that at this moment like that's still on my that's still i want to make a career out of illustration you know okay so not yeah so not only comic book art but i do have some ideas for for one or two like comics which will be just in your face brutal vulgar but also with a redeeming side of of humanity to it you know you know, build up um, build up a world and a story, like that of Mobius or Gendy Tarvalsky's, you know, Primal and Samurai Aww, Jack. Oh, bro, Primal is so good. <laughs> if there was one thing I wish I had right now was a DVD box set of Primal. That I think all the Primal episodes are free on AdultSwim.com. Oh my god! All right, now I know what I'm gonna do for the next three days. That that show is, bro. I can't wait for part two. Part two. Yeah, man. Part two is supposed to come out in the fall. Oh my god. We're we're we're. Oof. I think my heart skipped a beat right there. Yeah, Primal's Primal's awesome. I've talked about it on this podcast before. I, I like watched it all in like a day, and I was just like, oh no, I didn't watch it all in a day because I was watching it as the episodes were happening. Oh. I was god. just absolutely mind blown by what Gendy Tartakovsky was able to achieve um, oh, that's... between that and Samurai Jack season 5 I'm like this guy makes my favorite animated shows hands down oh. to be honest I just um, I wish he made the Popeye movie please er, er... oh if yeah he... I remember yes. and there was Before... I, I recently saw the footage of that of the like Popeye movie like like that footage that came out for yep. it, that was like the teaser or whatever. Yep. That looked hilarious. That it was hilarious, clean. Like I felt like he reinvented Popeye. Like, like for and like, the, like for us, and it was work, and it worked. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And not only that, like, he did it in such a good way, like, to avoid a Popeye as well, and olive oil, and he he was hitting, he hit all the nails on the head, and then funding was just taken away from him and given to the Emoji movie. Bro, we need a Popeye movie now. More than ever. Yeah, I would, lo- I would love to see that. I would love to see them bring back Popeye headed by Gendy Tardy. I have to watch the Hotel Transylvania movies because he's done because he did those. Yeah. And I hear see, that they're good. See, for me, I, I was like, this is what Gendy Tarabowski's working on. We need Samurai Jack. We need Popeye right now. But then looking at them, I was like, you know, they're actually clean and smooth and good story-wise. Yeah, right? it's one of those things where it's like, you have to like, obviously you're like, okay, this is like made for kids more than his other work. But, yeah. like, you have to also appreciate, like, when, when things that are made for kids are also, like, really just skillfully made, too. Yeah. Yeah, so, gotta get that, that bigot, you know, that uh bigotry out of there. Exactly, you know? yeah. Because a lot of people, like, once they, they go, oh, once it once it's, like, for kids, they, like, kind of write it off. But, like, people don't realize, like, how good some kids' programming has been. Oh, yeah, animation-wise. Also, we can also have, like, another discussion about this another day of where it, it has not progressed well um uh do you have any qu- other questions my man i know you have a list oh um actually <laughs> low-key when you were telling your stories you were answering tons of questions <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, as, okay. as i was going on but um okay. i just where can people find you where can people find raul lazada on the internet during this quarantine oh god Get some, um, get some of that sweet, sweet uh, content that that you are known for. Um, so people can find me, me and can find myself on Instagram primarily because that's my main art account is also there. So I I would have to say this, and I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. Yeah, you can say your Instagram handle. <laughs> yeah. Well, so for my main page. So people can look up and interact with me and, you know, follow the Bandcamp link to our music. It's Raul Wolf Tits all together. And there's no space, no lowercase, just all together, Raul Wolf Tits. Uh, it should be the first thing that pops up. And that's my main account. I will post art from time to time, but I'll post mainly music and just, like, pictures of, like, the random places I've been. Uh, if you want to follow my art account, which is different, it's, um, it's called Wolf Tits underscore design. Nice. And, and um, those are names I will not change anytime soon. But it stands out. Yeah, I remember when I first told you, you just cracked up as well. Yeah, it was, it was pretty hilarious. Yeah, hey, I got $500 writing on that, on that name right now. Oh. I can't change it. Yeah, oh, so, so and... people... Yeah, I remember you said you're like I'm not trying to lose a bet. <laughs> yeah, guys, this is a five hundred dollar bet right now. It's just get incrementally this fifty plus dollars like a year. So, I do have one other thing I just want to ask you if you've heard about, so I can get you hyped up for life. <laughs> you know that they are making Mad Max Wasteland, and that it is going to be a prequel to Mad Max Fury Road. And it's going to be about Furiosa. Oh, so oh my God! So so, 
Miller finally cleared the the hurdle that he, that they were throwing him. Yeah, it's where they're working on it right now. Oh my. Well, well, I mean, you know, relatively, yeah. it's in oh it's in a it's in pre production, I believe. Oh my god, it's still in development. Well, they're thinking about well, casting Anya Taylor Joy to play Furiosa. Really? Yeah. So everybody's happy because this is a Mad Max movie. We get Furiosa, you know. She was but, awesome. Um, <laughs> she she was a great addition, um, to the movie and to the world. Now, has there been any? Is this solely focused on Furiosa, or will there be a hint of Max somewhere? So that's what I'm not sure about because it is a prequel, and obviously, Mad Max Fury Road is the first time Furiosa and Max have met. Mm-hmm. Unless they decide that, unless they unless they do something different and they're able to explain that, but mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure. But I know Tom Hardy; he signed on for a bunch of more Mad Max movies after Mad Max Fury Road came out. So oh, yeah. I think right now it's sort of like with Blade Runner. Remember Blade mm-hmm. Runner twenty forty nine? Like they basically yeah. set up the uh, the possibility to just make more movies building that world. Yes. In that movie. Um, I feel like this is kind of the approach that Miller is taking right now. So I think like we'll probably see this Furiosa prequel and who knows if Max will show up or not show up. But I'm I'm I am hopeful in the future that we'll see another reunion of Charlize Theron and um Tom Hardy as Mad Max and Furiosa together. Yeah. because that team up was one of the best team ups in cinema history, I have to say. Yeah, it was it was natural, and to be honest, it it worked out. To be honest, it was Mad Max Fury Road was a beautiful film, despite people calling it a, a feminist um, flop. I don't know where people saw the feminism there, like a like the SJW feminism. I I could not see that. I, I, people are, have to have their you know their heads up their buttocks to see. And I think and I think that movie is very pro women empowerment, but it's not like this third wave terrible like toxic feminism that we have now that movie is just like yeah girls can be super cool too and it's not an issue and i like that the movie sort of is willing to sit there and kind of talk about how the gender roles over time like what when it would break down it would go back to like a very seriously primal state of gender roles and yep. what and how detrimental that kind of is to society a little bit when it gets that extreme. Yeah, and also like people have to take into account it's the wasteland in in the in Miller's universe where the women aren't you know aren't subject to being you know the housewife or all these all these roles that we take into account now. Like this is a world where Furiosa can be a warrior, you know, has to survive, and also there's you know there's the wives. They have to, you know, reproduce. Yes. It's like you know, in the, the Giver with the birth mothers and stuff like that. Yep. yep. Yeah. So that's, anyway. That's, oh yeah, that's. Thank you for uh, updating me on that. I haven't heard anything from Wasteland in a while. No, yeah, I was hearing it recently, and I was like, oh shoot, I gotta tell my boy Raul about this. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I thank you for being on Raul. It's an honor and a pleasure to always to have you on, talk to you have another mm-hmm. conversation uh i hope all of you guys enjoyed this episode uh it's been a long time coming let's say that yeah and uh let's everybody stay safe during their quarantine don't go outside 
you know, wash your hands. The toilet paper is not going to save you. Um, yeah. Facebook. <laughs> I, I needed to go to five stores to buy toilet paper. Bro, it's, it, it's ridiculous. But, um, but yeah, everybody stay safe. Hope keep listening to podcasts. This is obviously not the last podcast I'm going to be doing. So look out for more podcasts here. Go follow Raul's Instagrams. Um, hit find listen to his mu- the band music uh, Liberación Violenta, right? Yep. Yep. And uh, everybody, just have a great rest of your week. And I'll see you guys on the next episode. Peace. Peace, peace out, everybody.